0: Hello and welcome to episode 281 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today for the concluding part of our story from last week. Can I point you in the direction of a new podcast all about the murder of 31-year-old Stuart Lubbock at Michael Barrymore's house in Essex 21 years ago? If you don't know the story or you just have a brief understanding of what happened, you'll be horrified at the details. Nine people attended a party, just eight left alive. At first it was reported that Stuart died as a result of a tragic accident, but this was clearly no accident. It was a sexual assault and a murder. Stuart's family and friends deserve justice. And Stuart's ex-wife, Sue, has been heavily involved in this podcast. So take a listen today to all six parts of His Name Was Stuart Lovick. Have you got your ticket yet to see me, Paul, host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and Mike, the host of the Murder Mile podcast? What do you mean, no? The show is How to Plan the Perfect Murder, and totally balls it up and our first date in Glasgow on the 30th of June, with tickets at just £12. Please support us if you can, as if we can break even, we'll take the show all over the UK and beyond. Just see the link for tickets at all my social media outlets. Outlets? Are the outlets? Channels. It's going to be a lot of fun, so... <laughs> some of it intentional. So please join us if you can in Glasgow and look out for more dates being released shortly. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this exclusive club. This week, that's Carla Tate, Sarah War, and Dave Simpson. Thank you all so much for supporting me and joining our Patreon community. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realise that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. I'm normally somebody who sleeps easily and well, but I just know that when I'm feeling stressed, my sleep really suffers, with all the knock on effects that that has on the rest of my life. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. And in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, to do less and maybe try some therapy. I've found that BetterHelp has really made a difference in helping me understand my emotions much more clearly. In this life, when we all live at such a hectic pace, taking the time to talk properly and really explore how I'm feeling has made a huge difference to managing stress in my life. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. So give it a try and see if online therapy can lower your stress. UK True Crime listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash truecrime. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash truecrime. Yeah, sorry to disappoint you, but there's no guessing the month and year game today, as this is part two of a two-part story. So let's quickly recap to where we got to last week. The bodies of two young women, 20-year-old Samo Paul and 30-year-old Tracy Turner, had been found less than three months and five miles apart in rural Leicestershire in late 1993 and early 1994. Then four years later, in December 1997, Alan Kite was arrested at the scene of a rape in Western Supermare for which he was sentenced to eight years in prison. A routine sample was taken from Kite in March 1998 and it came back showing a match for DNA Found on Tracy Turner's body. Detectives interviewed Kite about the murders of Samo and Tracy without telling him that they had the DNA. The chances of Kite's DNA matching another man's were well over 33 million to one, so detectives asked him some more about Tracy Turner and how his DNA could have been found on her body. When police officers showed me a photo of Tracy, I didn't recognise her at all, Kite said. Then I realised. I may have seen her a couple of times in the Top of the World Club in Stafford. She was a fat girl with blonde hair, and when I saw her photos in the paper, it clicked. They say the DNA is mine, and in that case, I must have had sex with her at some point. Why is everyone obsessed with Tracy's weight? He continued to deny he had picked up Tracy at the motorway service station, or that he'd ever been to the part of Leicestershire. Where Tracy and Samo's bodies were found. He said he didn't use sex workers, which detectives knew was a lie, and he also revealed to them that he'd owned a Brown Ford Sierra car, the same type that had been seen by the witness who believed she'd seen the body, the dead body, of Samo in this car on the day that Samo disappeared. After Tracy's body had been found, it transpired that Alan Kite had turned up at Alton Services in the West Midlands, not far from where Tracy was last seen, pretending to be a reporter from Stafford. He was asking people at the service station about the recent murders in the area and whether the victims, especially Tracy, had been seen at the service station. He carried on this bizarre charade by heading to a nearby payphone. Saying that he needed to file the copy with the news desk. Detectives asked him about his time posing as a reporter, and he lied again, saying that it hadn't been him, once more not knowing that he'd been picked up on CCTV and also recognised by witnesses. This behaviour suggested that Kite revelled in the response to the murders he committed. Almost like this man who'd never really been listened to before was now being shown up to be the clever man he was, getting one over the police and the public. The timing of his second murder, Tracy Turner, appears not to be random. On the night she was killed, Central Television had highlighted the murder of Samo Paul and even run a reconstruction of the events leading up to Samo's death. Detectives believe that this was the catalyst for Kite to kill again just hours later. Detectives charged Alan Kite with the murders of Samo and Tracy. They finally had found their killer. But the fear was just how many more victims may have suffered at the hands of the man, later labelled the Midlands Ripper. So just who was this man, Alan Kite, who'd already been convicted of rape and was now arrested on suspicion of murdering Samo and Tracy? Detectives took a closer look into his life. He was born in July 1964 in Titinsaw, Stoke-on-Trent. From there he experienced what appears to be a very ordinary childhood with his parents, living in a quiet residential area, the Rickerscote area of Stafford if you know it, and avoiding any contact with the police throughout his childhood. He didn't get into any trouble. He wasn't a popular child and he wasn't sporty at all, suffering badly with asthma. As we've heard many times before on this podcast, About men who committed terrible crimes, he was a real mummy's boy, and his mum and sister indulged him throughout his childhood. I've spoken about his failure to make many friends as a child, and this continued into adulthood, with one acquaintance who sometimes saw him at the local pub saying, He'd come in here with his mate, play pool, and leave. Kite worked as a mechanic and a lorry driver. But then after falling out of his family in 1991, two years before Samo was murdered, he developed a lifestyle where he just drifted around the country, engaging in a number of scams to fund staying in hotels and hostels. He was almost never seen with women and had no girlfriends of any significance in his life, telling acquaintances he was travelling around looking for work. A lot of his time was spent at motorway service stations, from where he would steal cars and also offer to retune other people's cars, although of course he did nothing of the sort, although he was always more than happy to take the cash for doing nothing. He would then use those cars that he was supposedly retuning to travel the motorway network across the Midlands, on occasions putting over a thousand miles on the car's mileage before fiddling the milometer. He was an arrogant man, and thought he had showed again his innate cleverness in taking cash and using a car that didn't belong to him. It's no wonder, is it, he struggled to build relationships. On these trips on the motorways, he became a prolific buyer of sex from sex workers across the UK, and was recognised in red-light districts from Norwich in the east to Gloucester and Chester in the west. His car was not picked up as a regular curb crawler due to the cars he borrowed to retune, and also as he frequently changed his personal car. After killing Samo and Tracy, Kite still managed to hustle this living, but he changed a little bit and now he was mainly making money from shoplifting, with a favourite tactic being to steal from the shop and then return the goods as faulty and take a cash refund. Again, this was Kite in his own mind, demonstrating just how clever he was. He was beating the system again. But (laughs) you're not surprised to hear he was arrested during this time for his scams. But he was never questioned about the murders. After all, why would he be? Frankly, at the time of the two killings, 29-year-old Kite wasn't too much to look at. He was a really slender build, and he had a whole range of other medical complaints in addition to his asthma. Whether these complaints were true or in his mind to get attention is unclear, but Kite was a regular visitor to doctor surgeries and hospitals all over the UK where he complained of a variety of ailments. As detectives and lawyers prepared the case for trial, a number of prisoners Held with Kite came forward to say how Kite had boasted about murdering Samo and Tracy and for numerous attacks on other sex workers. He was reported to have said, You don't pay for that sort of girl, and that both murders occurred over payment for sex. He also allegedly told how one of the women, believed to be Samo, had laughed at him for his lack of sexual prowess, so he killed her to shut her up and this fits with the evidence given by other women who came forward, believing they'd been attacked by Kite. He felt he shouldn't pay for sexual services, and this appeared to be key to his violence. Alan Kite faced an 11-day trial on two counts of murder, to which he pleaded not guilty. Under cross-examination, Kite could not explain the presence of his DNA in Tracy's body, saying... I cannot explain how it got there, because I'm not a forensic scientist. It is for the jury to decide on that evidence. They say the DNA is mine, and in that case I must have had sex with her at some point. You meet people and have sex with them, or a one-night stand, and you don't remember it. The jury didn't buy his defence, and quickly returned a unanimous decision of guilty on both counts of murder. For these crimes, Alan Kite was sentenced to 25 years and present. Sentencing Kite, the judge said, You clearly despise these women, but it's also clear that it is you who should be despised. It was during this trial that Kite was first labelled the Millen's Ripper in the papers which covered the trial, because there was so much speculation that there were numerous other victims, which we'll return to shortly. Samo's sister Raj spoke after the trial, she said. The family feel that justice has been seen to be done by pulling away a sick and disturbed individual for good. The last seven years of the family have been a great turmoil and desperation. Maybe today's society continues to maintain the belief that being a prostitute makes it okay to have no repercussions for actions taken by their clients. Each of us has the right to say no and maintain the right to be treated as a human being and not killed as an animal. Kite later appealed against his sentence but the High Court judge rejected the claim by Kite that his 25-year sentence was too long. During the hearing, the judge revealed that during his time in prison Kite had accepted his culpability in relation to Tracy Turner's murder but he still denied any involvement in the murder of Samo Paul. The judge told Kite's solicitors that Kite had made impressive progress in prison, but he said he did not believe it was enough to have an influence on sentence. We should just pause and step back a bit until, just after Tracy's body was found, to give the police some credit. West Midlands police knew there were many attacks of sex workers outside their jurisdiction, with the potential to be linked, and they didn't want to repeat the mistakes of the Sutcliffe investigation. It still haunts police forces, doesn't it? This led to the Midlands police forces coming together and launching Operation Enigma in May 1996, with the aim at the time being to review the unsolved murders of up to 207 women dating back to 1986, which were committed against sex workers or women who could have been mistaken for sex workers, using the most modern of techniques. The conclusion from this was that many of the sex workers killed, especially in the 90s, were killed by one person. With 14 cases in particular having striking similarities, detectives had to face the possibility that there could potentially be up to four serial killers active and murdering sex workers was Kite one of them? There was certainly the real possibility that he was responsible for more crimes. Surely the way he killed Sammo, this wasn't his first victim. After the trial, the Leicestershire Assistant Chief Constable said, Alan Kite is an evil man who has travelled the length and breadth of Great Britain, committing crimes. I do not believe that we have uncovered the full extent of his criminality, and in particular, there is every reason to believe he may have been responsible for other serious attacks on women. This view is shared by a serial killer expert, Chase Merriweather, who firmly believed Kite killed more people, and had some interesting analysis, I think, about Kite when asked about other potential victims. She said, The Midlands Ripper was sort of moving around and picking on what he believed were the most vulnerable people in society, which were the sex workers. I've heard many testimonials from serial killers that the reason why they would primarily target sex workers is that they're very easy to pick up. They will willingly go into the vehicle of a stranger. That's part of their job description. Also, them being missing, it won't be noticed right away. If it was someone who was working a 9-5 to five office job, as soon as you don't turn up at 9am, it will be noticed. There is also not a set place for working. It's just a general location. So there are several reasons why they'd prey on sex workers. Kite was an organized serial killer, which gets the victim from crime scene one, where they meet you, to crime scene two, where they intend to do you harm. A disorganized serial killer, like the Yorkshire Ripper, would kill a victim where he found them, and out of the blue, frenzied attack, But the Midlands Ripper, he had to get them to a second crime scene. He'd pick them up, have sex with them, then murder them. Usually the most difficult thing is getting them from scene 1 to scene 2, so he targets sex workers to eliminate that problem as it's in their job description to go with strangers. The most frightening thing was, they probably didn't know they were in trouble until it was too late. It is said that while he was on remand, Kite confessed to his cellmate that he'd got away with at least 10 more murders. An inadequate man bragging? Or was this the truth? Before we take a look at some of the murders for which he is suspected of being responsible, as always, we have to be very clear that as of the 4th of March 2022 when I'm recording this podcast, Alan Kite has not been convicted of any further murders so detectives have been unable to find enough evidence to link him to any of the killings. Of course, that doesn't mean he wasn't responsible. I'd suggest these old crimes are not the top priority of any overstretched police force, and maybe advances in DNA and other technology are not yet at the stage to provide the key evidence. With that said, let's go through to some of the crimes for which he is a clear suspect. Julie Finlay had just turned 23 when she vanished from Liverpool on the 5th of August 1994. The last sighting of Julie was at the back of the Royal Liverpool University Hospital, talking to a man who was described as white and believed to be aged in his 20s or 30s. Was this Alan Kite? Just a day later, her naked body was found strangled in a carrot field off the St Helens-bound carriageway of the Rainford Bypass. Her murder has been linked to Kite as she may have been selling sex at the time of her disappearance. Julie was dumped just off the motorway network and was strangled and her killer dumped her body and made no attempt to hide her. Just like Kite had done with his other two victims. Julie would now be in her early 50s and her mum said, I can't get Julie out of my mind. Her killer is still alive while she's in a cemetery. 32-year-old Carol Clark is another potential victim. A sex worker who was strangled before her half-naked body was thrown into the canal in Stroud, Gloucestershire, in March 1993. Kite at this time lived in Western Supermare, just 20 miles from Carol's flat in Bristol, and was a regular at the Bristol Red Light District in St Paul's where Carol worked and her body was found under a mile from the M5 motorway. Had she the misfortune to meet Alan Kite? And what about 19-year-old Dawn Shields, whose body was found under rocks in the Peak District on the 20th of May 1994? Detectives tell of her early difficult life and how she was selling sex on the streets of Sheffield from the age of just 14. You know, when I talk about these people whose murder hasn't been solved. I hate the fact that it's just such short snippets, so let me just go into a bit more detail about Dawn so you know more about her. Beginning by quoting briefly from an article by Pat Moore in the People newspaper who said, There were just a few minutes left of Friday the 13th. Dawn Shields kissed her sleeping baby son and went to work as a prostitute on the dark streets of Sheffield's red light area. In her black miniskirt, see-through black shirt and black bra and ankle boots, she soon attracted one client who picked her up in a cream-coloured car. Dawn, who charged between 15 and £25, pounds, did not allow the punters to linger. By 12.45am she was back on Broomhall Road and getting into a dark-coloured hatchback. A week later, a National Trust warden was test-driving a four-wheel-drive vehicle Over the grassy hill of Mam Tor, 18 miles away in the Peak District. He stopped to answer a call of nature and glimpsed something in a gap between rocks. It was Dawn who had been strangled. Her friend, who was looking after her 11 month old son, Narrell, became increasingly worried when Dawn wasn't home by 1.30am and she reported her missing at 7.30am on Saturday, May the 14th and then went round to Dawn's mum. Dawn's mum said of her daughter, Dawn was a smashing little girl. She would a happy, normal childhood, but she was very upset when her father died, when she was eight. She was a real little daddy's girl. Even though we were very close, she never talked about his death. As she grew up, Dawn got in the wrong company, and just before she was 15, she fell for this older man. He turned out to be a pimp. I tried everything in my power to stop her. I went to social services, He said it was all part of growing up. I also went to the police because the pimp was 29 years old. They said that unless Dawn made a statement, they couldn't help. She was completely controlled by her pimp boyfriend. When I saw him, we argued like hell. I pleaded with him to leave her alone, but he just laughed. Can you imagine what it feels to know your daughter is on the streets? Dawn worked nearly every night, but she never had any money. She didn't even have a bank account. She once said she didn't dare tell me how much money he had taken from her in the time that she'd known him. She had nothing. Any little luxuries or treats she had, she had them at my house. She knew my front door was always open to her. When she was here, the kettle was always on, and she'd raid the fridge for chocolate. Dawn was also introduced to drugs by her boyfriend and her weight dropped from nine and a half stone to seven stone. She once told me she only took drugs because it helped the pain when he hit her. When you listen to that, what else can you think? But poor Dawn, murdered at just 19 before she'd ever really had a chance to live. Was Kite her final customer in the Sheffield Red Light District that evening? And in the Midlands, Three murders in particular looked like they could well have been down to Alan Kite. Barbara Finn went missing while selling sex in the Coventry Red Light District of Hillfields in 1991, having left her six-year-old daughter with relatives while she went to work. Barbara was a heroin addict who sold sex to fund this addiction, as we've heard so many times before. And Coventry mum Nicola Payne disappeared after taking a shortcut across playing fields on her way home in December 1991. Now Nicola wasn't a sex worker. She was just 18 when she went missing. And she'd been filled with excitement about her first Christmas as a mum to seven-month-old year Owen. She waved goodbye to her partner Jason in the middle of the day and left to head to her parents' home, which was just a six-minute walk away. But she never made it, and her body has never been found. Her cousin Amanda said recently, Nicola was the big sister I never had. I was eight years younger than Nicky and I really looked up to her. When she disappeared, the enormity of what had happened hit me a few days later when I saw my mum in the lounge, looking out of the window at the police helicopters overhead, sobbing. I'd never seen her cry before. She had everything to live for. She completely adored her son and everyone who knew her loved her. Finally, as we could look at another 10 or 15 cases easily, we moved to Marie Garrity, who was also a sex worker and a mum, who disappeared from the same area as Barbara and Nicola four years later. She told a babysitter looking after her three children that she would return home shortly, possibly after visiting a client. She never came home, leaving her three children to live with her sister in the West Country was Marie another victim of the so-called Midlands Ripper? So what do you make of what we've heard over the last two weeks? When we talk about sex workers, on this podcast we never fall back on the easy cliches that we so often see and hear when talking about this group of people. Primarily, we don't define them by their job, just like anyone else we talk about on this show. To us, each person is an individual. They're someone's child, someone's mum, niece, auntie and friend. But how they can be grouped together is that there are more unsolved sex worker murders than any other group of people. That was the same 50 years ago and is still the case today and unfortunately will still be the same 50 years from now. And in our story over the last few weeks, We've heard again that the very nature of sex work, especially on the streets, leaves these women very vulnerable to men like Alan Kite. Weak, inadequate men. Men who aren't revulsed by their terrible crimes, but instead, they glory in them. Kite must be due to be released on parole about now. Following the Colin Pitchfork debacle, I hesitate to say that surely he will never be released. But that has to be the case, doesn't it? After all, Kite is only in his late 50s, so he must be seen as a potential danger, mustn't he? As always, I will end by urging you to reflect about the most important people in this story. Samo Paul, Tracy Turner and their friends and their families. Our thoughts are with them and with all those other people, desperately awaiting news of their relatives or friends who are even missing or have been found murdered and yet nobody's been convicted of their murder. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please just head to the Facebook group where almost 80,000 of us talk crime 24-7. Just head to Facebook and search UK True Crime. And to support the show, join my community at Patreon. It's the place to be for bonus episodes and other exclusive content, including the chance to win backstage tickets for my forthcoming live shows and a free signed copy of my book about serial killer Angus Sinclair if you join on an annual package from as little as £17 a year. So just head on over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So that's all for me for another week. There has been a bit of consternation in my Facebook group this week. Apparently this show was showing it number 10 or 11 or 12 in a podcast chart. I mean, as a regular listener, you know that can't be true. We are proudly the 37th most popular true crime podcast in the UK. Ask anyone in the saunas in Rochdale, they'll tell you. So on that note, that's it for me for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday, despite all the others, I know, I know, despite all the others, please do stay classy. Cheerio for now.